The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, after a year-long suspension due to the pandemic and months of testimony, L.A. prosecutors have rested their case against accused murderer Robert Durst. So now it's his turn to make his case. And in true Robert Durst fashion, he is doing it his way by taking the stand in his own defense, just as he did in 2003 when he was acquitted by a Texas jury of murder. Can Durst convince another jury of the same thing? Court TV's Ted Rollins joins me to discuss his testimony so far. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinnie Politan. Robert Durst. This is a case and a trial unlike any I have ever covered. I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Court TV Podcast. And this is this is really something. Robert Durst, this is a case that is Robert Durst accused of, of murdering his best friend Susan Berman in order to cover up the murder of his first wife back in 1982. OK, now here's the here's the problem. He was never charged with the murder of his wife back in 1982 in New York, but he's being charged uh, and being implicated in that murder as part of this case, as well as the murder of another man in Texas who he was uh, accused of murdering, but was found not guilty at trial. So it's a very complicated case. But for those of you who have seen the jinx, that's what this trial is all about. It's the jinx murder trial. Robert Durst, millionaire, didn't earn a dime. He inherited it all from his grandfather. I mean, just tens of millions of dollars, uh, but is basically being accused of being a serial killer by the prosecutor in this case. And he has now taken the witness stand in his own defense. And during the course of this podcast, I want to go through uh, some of his direct testimony, direct testimony, not the cross-examination, right? Cross-examination, that's the tough part. The direct examination is supposed to be the easy part. It's, it's easier than an open notebook test. It's like not only do you get to look up the answers, you you know the questions ahead of time. Okay, so you know what's coming and you can prepare for it and deal with it. So keep that in mind as we talk about the testimony of Robert Durst today and joining us, Ted Rollins, Court TV anchor, my colleague, my friend for many, many years. Uh, Ted, great, great to have you back here on the podcast. Great to be here, Vinny. And this case uh, is, is fascinating and We've been talking about Robert Durst taking the stand now for about 18 months. And this jury has been waiting for him to take the stand. Uh, and, and here we are. It's, it's uh, just fascinating. Now, for background, it's not like it's the first time we're hearing from Robert Durst, because anyone that saw the jinx knows that he has spoken at length about his life and the death of all these people and the disappearance of his wife and everything else associated with this case. He's been on the record talking about it. And I almost think this is like what he enjoys doing. For whatever reason, he, he he enjoys the spotlight, and there's no greater spotlight than a defendant enjoys when he or she takes the witness stand at their own murder trial. Oh, he absolutely enjoys it, and um, you, you pick that up out of the gate. Keep in mind, for the last few months, they've been trying to convince this judge that this, there should be a mistrial because Robert Durst is going to die on the witness stand. He's in such 
horrible physical condition that testifying could kill him. Um, well, we're now seeing that that is not ha- going to happen. He uh, is absolutely 100% there mentally, and uh, he is doing what he has done so many times. He admits to things that the average person would be ashamed of, and he does it with such conviction that it makes you think, well, wait a he's telling the truth about this horrible thing he did. Uh, is, he, is he telling the truth about not doing this other horrible thing? He is, uh, he is genius. And we saw that happen in Galveston. He, he admitted to dismembering a, a man and a jury down there found him not guilty somehow. Right. Because as you said, Ted, it, it, no one does it better, I guess, at admitting what you can't deny and then denying what you can't admit if you want to be found not guilty. And that's where we are in this case. So um, Kathy Durst was his wife and they lived kind of the extravagant life. You know, they had the country house. Uh, they were in New York. It was the late 70s. We know what was happening. It was, you know, good times. Everybody was having fun and out partying, especially if you have inherited uh, millions and millions of dollars and don't really have to work. So Kathy Durst disappeared back in 1982. He's never been charged with her murder, but being implicated in that in this case by this prosecutor in California for something that happened in New York. York um, or perhaps in another state. But part of his testimony is going back in time and telling us about um, life with Kathy Durst. And it it, it was absolutely amazing to me on several different levels. Uh, But let's begin here with Robert Durst talking about his wife, Kathy, and um, cocaine. When did you first become aware that Kathy was using Okay. <laughs> well, Bill Burr used to have what she called coke and veggie parties. She would cook vegetables, lots of vegetables, and she had lots of cocaine. So when you said that a moment ago, it wasn't like Coca-Cola and veggies, it was cocaine and veggies. Is that right? Absolutely. Maybe there was Coca-Cola there too, but there was sure a lot of cocaine. Uh, where do, do you want to start with the voice, Ted, first of all? His, his voice, it, it reminds me of the uh, creepy old man on Family Guy. That's who it <laughs> reminds me of. Um, but your thoughts about Durst and, and, and just the, the manner in which he is testifying, the voice, the look, everything. Yeah, it's hard to um, figure out if he is accentuating his ailments for the jury. And if, you know... After this trial, he is going to spring back to um, a different person. But physically, we've watched him deteriorate over the last couple of years. And now his voice has gotten to this point where it is hard to hear him at times and it goes in and out. But that said, his memory and his recollection and his little tidbits that he adds into the stories and, and and the fact that he reacts to questions you know well there there might have been some coke there as well along with the cocaine it's just disarming and you you want to hear more from this guy 
it, it's unbelievable. And, and it's the, it is the details, Ted. And as he was recounting these days, I mean, there were stories about uh, a couple of nightclubs that I used to go to. One that is extremely famous, uh, Studio 54. I could see him and Kathy being part of that crowd. I just rewatched the movie with Mike Meyer the other night uh, to prepare for this today, Ted. But um I mean, cocaine was flying. Studio 54 had a large spoon that used to be lowered down from the rafters to symbolize what all of the people except me inside were doing. And um, it, it, it to me, there's such a ring of truth to it when he's talking about cocaine. And I could see these two people, young, millions of dollars, partying, Manhattan, late 70s, cocaine. Yeah, and, and he, visualize, he, he makes you visualize it with the way... Um, even, you know, to put his faint voice aside, the details bring you into his story. He's a great storyteller. And the subject matter is um, just fascinating. It, you know, the, like you say, just the life of the rich and famous and young doing drugs and partying. Oh, yeah, I'm going to listen to that story. I wonder where it's going. And I think part of this is he, he's trying to um, damage Kathy Durst a little bit to, to you know, spread some information that may make her disappearance not necessarily not necessarily look like he murdered her and talking about her drug use and and uh cocaine etc i think is part of that and that's the brilliance of it that's because he's doing it in a way that he is not judgmental of kathy knowing that a juror might be and uh, a juror might now think oh well if she was mixed up with some cocaine people who knows why she disappeared maybe she was an addict but he doesn't do it in a judgmental way and say oh my ex-wife yeah she was real big into that cocaine and i was real worried no he's saying yeah we, i was right there with her um, she, she had more of a problem than me, but uh, he's not, it's, it's incredible the way he is able to plant that seed without coming across as being um, doing it consciously, even though we know he is. Yeah, it's spot on, Ted, because let's listen to this part where he talks about his own drug use and then listen carefully how he, as Ted said, minimizes his own involvement in it. Did you use cocaine? I tried it several times. Fortunately, I cannot snort anything because I have bad hay fever. So whenever I would try cocaine, my nose would be clogged up for three or four days. Did you use other drugs? Did you use other drugs? Methamphetamine. What about marijuana? Lots of marijuana. And he knows he knows marijuana is like, you know, it's not even illegal in half the states anymore, uh, including California. So he throws that one on. Um, it's amazing, though, Ted, because he's at these clubs like uh, Studio 54, another club, which was actually the first nightclub I ever went to, Xenon. He was there in the early 80s. I may have bumped into him. Um, but everyone else has like night fever, Saturday night fever at the clubs. He's got hay fever, so he can't snort the coke, Ted. Amazing. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I love it. He smokes a lot of weed. Well, marijuana is legal in California. This jury is in California. That's not going to hurt him at all. But the person with a cocaine addiction is a different person, right? So he was able to beautifully say, yeah, my wife was basically addicted. She had a problem. I didn't. But um, you should factor that into your decision making in terms of why she disappeared. Yeah, I guess at those parties, he had more of the veggies than the Coke. I, I guess that's the way it worked out there. 
Now, Kathy Durst um, was either killed by Robert Durst or something else happened to her. So his story is that she basically disappeared and, you know, he took her to the train station to go back home to Manhattan. They were at at one of their other homes and she just disappeared. Uh, Here he is talking about that, but having to admit to some lies. Later on, we're jumping ahead. You told Detective Strzok that you had gone to the mayor's house to have a drink. That's what I told them. Was that true? No. Why did you tell him that? It seemed like he wanted me to tell him that I had done stuff. After taking Kathy to the train, I sort of told him what I felt like he wanted to hear. Did you call Kathy later that night? No. Did you tell Detective Strzok that you had? I did. I told Detective Strzok that I had telephoned Kathy in the Riverside Drive apartment and she was watching the news. And that wasn't true? That was a lie. Why did you tell that lie? Because I wanted to convince him that Kathy had gotten back to Riverside Drive. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, this is direct examination. And Ted, a big problem that Robert Durst has is that he's told so many stories through the years, but it's been so many years that um, it's gotten to a point on some of these lies where he's either gotten tripped up or, or new evidence has surfaced and he can no longer go with that lie. And, and now here he is having to admit to lies to police involving the disappearance of his wife. Facts that um, are connected to the disappearance of his wife. This is amazing. Absolutely amazing. Because to me, why would you lie about this stuff other than that you're, you, you're somehow implicated in what happened to Kathy? Well, and his explanation, though, is great in that he says, um, I lied because I didn't want them to think I did something wrong, basically. That's his answer every time is, yeah, I lied about why. Well, I, you know, I didn't want them to think that I was responsible for these things. But he has this underlying sort of confidence that, um, that the jury is not going to connect. Well, you lied about this, 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 and this. Uh, you're not lying about the big question. I don't, he got away with it in Texas, so I'm not counting this guy out. No, you, you can't count him out, but it's, it's, it is such, um, in a normal case and, and right, because in a normal case, this would be absolutely devastating, but we're kind of walking on eggshells with all of this, Ted, as we analyze all of this, because we have the history here of him being successful at trial once before. So it's almost a different perspective um, for me, and, and it sounds like for you as well, in analyzing it, because if if other accused killers got caught in lies like this, we would be like smoking gun, smoking gun, smoking gun, but not quite sure if it is, in fact, a, a series of smoking guns for the prosecutor here. And a lot of it is his execution, even though, again, his voice is frail, but his... <laughs> His delivery is filled with such confidence that, yes, I lied about this, and this is why. And he just delivers it. Matter of fact, and in fact, he, he admits things that the average person would be embarrassed to admit. And the average person, especially a defendant, um, wants to 
make you most defendants want not only the jury to find them not guilty, but on some level, they want the, the, the jury to take them out to dinner afterwards and be friends with them. They are they want their credibility restored as well. Not Dirk. He is more than happy to say he smoked a lot of weed. He did this. He 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 decapitated or, you know, he butchered Morris Black and, and, and chopped him up into little pieces. He does it with zero affect. And he, he owns all of his bad decisions with some sort of confidence that is, uh, it's just so strange that it gets people's attention. And I think you hit the nail on the head once again, Ted. You are spot on today, by the way, <laughs> because I, it, it makes me think, right? Most defendants, when they get up there, they are defendants and sometimes they're a little defensive and they, they don't want to admit anything and they try to um, put themselves on a pedestal. Um, to, to some higher ground, and he doesn't do that. He's not. He's not reaching for the higher ground. He just wants to tread water uh, somehow to a not guilty verdict. So um, we shall see. We shall see. We've got a lot more to get to here in the podcast. We've talked about Kathy Durst, but that's not the victim in this case. That's just one of the circumstances uh, related to the alleged motive in the case. Now. The victim is Susan Berman, his best friend, who who prosecutors believe helped Robert Durst and knew all about the murder of Kathy. So when the heat was back on, prosecutors believe that Robert Durst then decided he had to kill Susan Berman to protect himself for what he did to Kathy Durst. When we come back, we'll zero in on his testimony regarding Susan Berman. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front-row seat to justice. Bob? Did you kill Susan Berman? No. Do you know who did? No, I do not. Do you realize you have an absolute right not to testify? I am aware of that. Do you want to testify in your own behalf? Yes. There it is. The denial of Robert Durst to what he is charged with in this case, the murder of Susan Berman, and there he is denying it. No, he's aware of his rights. Do you want to testify? Yes. Something else you should note about the testimony, if you've watched any of the trial, from time to time during his testimony, Robert Durst looks to his left after the question is asked. And it's not every question, it's just some questions. And a lot of viewers are thinking that Robert Durst is reading an answer. He's actually reading the question because he apparently has some uh, difficulty hearing and doesn't hear every question. So if he doesn't hear it, he will turn to his left and then read it off of a screen where an instantaneous uh, uh, transcript is being uh, put on that screen for him. So um, that's what he's doing if you're watching the trial, which you can watch on Court TV. Uh, Ted Rollins, Court TV anchor, still with us. Um, There's the denial. And and Ted, I think it's significant, uh, the denial, because... Sometimes, and I've actually covered a case where the ultimate question was never asked of the defendant whether or not they committed the crime. 
it was it was amazing. We listened to testimony for like a day and a half from the defendant, and never once was she asked, "Did you kill your husband?" And it was like, "What just happened?" But here, taken care of, you know, very early off the top, and the denial. Your thoughts about his denial, the way he delivered it. Well, I, I think it was great that DeGarren, his lawyer, got it out of the way right out of the gate because you're right. Sometimes it, it'll come back as like the last question. You know, they've gone through the direct, did you kill blank? Um, getting it out first is, is perfect because now you can go back and recreate all of the circumstances leading up to that time period was exactly what they did. And here's where his voice and his frailty may help him or, or maybe not i don't know it's just but it's another factor into this whole thing where he's like no with that you know that the, the way he speaks at first it's un, it's it's difficult to hear and it's a little unnerving to look and hear him but and, and look at him and listen to him but then after a while which this jury's been around him now for 18 months there's a sort of old man telling a story aspect to this thing and it may be working to his advantage, his frail condition. Now, there's another part of this case, Ted, that I wanted to address with you here, and that is the sort of the vibe in the courtroom. OK, we have a very charismatic judge. We have a passionate prosecutor, an experienced defense attorney and um, a character beyond characters and Robert Durst. Um, and, and this has been a long case. It started uh, before covid. Then it suddenly stopped and then resumed more than a year later and has continued. And it's a long, long trial, longer than most. But there have been a lot of moments in this trial, Ted, and it happens in most cases, but not as often as it is here. There are moments of, of laughter. There's a humanization. It's like inside that courtroom, even in front of the jury, Everyone has become a character. There's a relationship between the judge and the and the lawyers and the lawyers and each other and the back and forth. They seem to all get along and understand they're doing something. But there are a lot of moments of laughter. And I'm, and I'm wondering your thoughts about how that is going to play. I, I think in the end, it makes jurors more comfortable where they are. But I think always the more comfortable they get. And the more humanizing everyone is in that courtroom, the more difficult it is to say guilty. I agree completely. I think that this is a huge advantage to Durst because, uh, and the defense, because that familiarity, it, it takes away that element that is in most courtrooms, especially in a murder case. And this is an alleged triple murder, really. And the, the first couple of days you're there as a jury, you're like, oh my gosh, this guy is a tri possibly a triple murderer. And, and you're, there's a legitimate sort of fear factor in the same room as a defendant for a lot of people that aren't used to courtrooms. You are, this is the direct opposite. Now it's Uncle Robert and there's no, these jurors are so comfortable. At the end of the day, the, the brutal facts of these murders have been long washed away in terms of the shock value. Now it's just sitting there judging Robert Durst and listening to his stories, listening to him and being familiar with him, it all adds up to advantage defense. And the other part of it is, uh, you know, these cases are so old and this is being tried in California. There, there are no there's no one there to really 
represent the victims here or the alleged victims here. So that I think that is, is another part of the equation and the uniqueness of this courtroom. Right. You, if you had a, a full gallery of victim family members there every day, which we see in a lot of the trials that we cover, that's another game changer. Because now as a juror, you have a responsibility to deliver justice if indeed you think this person did it. Take that away. Now it, it, it's all about Robert Durr. It's all about the defending this case. And at your point earlier is spot on where you don't, you feel, you feel bad for send you to, to find someone, you know, guilty. It's like punishing your kids. You know, it's not easy to do. And these jurors have such familiarity now that it's, it has to benefit the defense. Okay. Let's get back now to some of Robert Durr's testimony and, and, Two big, big pieces of evidence that were a big part of the Jinx uh, documentary, um, which really kind of, I, I think, for for folks from coast to coast, kind of put this around the world, really, kind of put this case uh, on the map and made it even more prominent than it was. And the first is when Susan Berman died, you know, she didn't really have relatives. She was living alone. A note was sent to police to inform them that Susan Berman was dead. And no one called 911. Someone sent a letter to police. And, and for years, Robert Durst denied doing it. He is now admitting that he's the one who wrote the letter to police, that his best friend was dead on the ground in her house. So that is something he has to deal with. And they call it the cadaver note, which is kind of a you know, a strange name, uh, but it but it describes what this is. It, it's a note sent to police about Susan Berman's dead body, so someone would find it. Let's take a listen. Did you write that letter? Yes, I did. Did you lie about it later? Yes. Did you lie did. about it for years? I did not get your answer. Did you lie about it for years? Yes. Why? Because it's a very difficult thing to believe. I mean, I have difficulty believing it myself that I would write the letter and have not killed Susan Berman. What? What was that? What did we just hear, Ted? That's almost like that's like a like a backhanded uh, a confession. That's classic Durst. It's it's that's it right there. Yes, I lied. I did it. Why? Because I can't. No one would believe it. I don't even believe it. <laughs> but you got to believe it. You got to believe it. Un, uh, unbelievable is the only way I can respond. So um, to me, this is amazing. But let's how does the jury handle this? And, and, and here's my fear as a former prosecutor who, looking at this evidence, believes that Robert Durst is guilty. I will admit that I believe he's guilty based upon his direct testimony, by the way. Um, will the jury overthink this and think if he did, if he actually killed her, he would never write this letter. He would never do that. that uh, a guilty person would never write this letter. That, that would be the, 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 the most stupid thing on earth to do. It just leave her body there. No one will ever find her, you know, and he didn't dismember her. So it's not Robert Durst. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, you're right. The, it is so. And this is what he did, though, with Morris Black and Galveston. He got up there and detailed how he chopped Morris Black, his neighbor, up into little pieces and threw him into the Galveston Bay after 
a self-defense scenario, which he explained in detail how they struggled over a gun and he accidentally killed Morris and didn't mean to, and Morris was trying to kill him, blah, blah, blah. At the end of the day, his admission and his detail about chopping up another human being actually helped him. That jury found him not guilty. Will it happen again? I was, I wrote this letter. Um, that's how stupid I was. You can't believe that I would have actually killed her because no one would do that. Um, that's his MO. I, again, uh, you would think that's ridiculous. This guy's going down in flames. However, there's something about this guy that um, you just can't count him out. All right. Now, in, in, the, in the Jinx documentary, there's the part which, you know, really caught all the buzz, right? And what everyone was talking about. And so Robert Durst is mic'd for the interview for the documentary and then uh, walks by himself to the bathroom but he still has the microphone on and they're still recording. Ted, how would you describe um, what was what was captured on that recording? Because I'm going to play in just a moment Robert Durst uh, talking about it and explaining that moment. But how would how would you describe what happened in that moment? Uh, it's the open mic of an old guy um, going to the bathroom. And after the, after he has said something he didn't want to say, lamenting to himself, talking to himself about what he just did and saying, oh, now you've done it. Talking to himself, oh, they've got you. You're caught. I think lamented, it, it, lamenting is, is the best way to, to describe that. And that's why I asked you to do it, not me. I would not have come up with that word, Ted Rollins. Um, it is. It's the moment afterwards. So he, he's finished the interview and maybe things haven't gone exactly the way he thought they were going to go. And now it's like one of those moments when no one is listening, but he's one of those people who talks to himself out loud, even though you can talk to yourself without actually verbalizing it. I mean, I do it all the time without verbalizing it, uh, but he actually verbalized it. So here he is on the stand now having to explain those statements and there was another part of the statements where he said, uh, kill them all, of course, killed them all, killed them all, of course. And there's been some fight about what exactly he said, what exactly it means. Well, here's Robert Durst's take on all of that. Later uh, in the recording of your talking to yourself, you also said, kill them all, of course. Yeah. What did you mean by that? What I did not say out loud, or perhaps I said very softly, is they'll all think I killed them all, of course. Did you at that moment realize that Mr. Jarecki was not trying to do something favorable to you? No. Why not? I don't know. Unbelievable. Again, he's thinking out loud, but maybe not his whole thought was verbalized or he said it really softly. So he so he fills in the blank where there is no blank. And now all of a sudden it makes sense. They'll they'll all think I killed them. Of course. They'll all think I that part not caught on any recording anywhere. I killed them all. Of course. Ted, there he goes again. It's another explanation, and it uh, on its surface is bizarre. But when he tells it, you think, "Hmm, okay, it kind of makes sense." I don't, I don't talk to myself like that, but I guess if I did talk to myself, I wouldn't articulate every thought 
out loud. Some of it would be in terms of maybe, maybe, okay, maybe he's on his side. I'll tell you what, Vinny, this case was lost for the defense possibly before it even started because the fact that they are able to talk about Morris Black, talk about Kathleen and not just Susan Berman, that's the difference here. I think the cumulative nature of all of these little things that he's been able to explain away I don't know that it works here. We shall see. And and don't forget, there's also cross-examination. As we're recording this, cross-examination has started, but it's going to take several days. So we're going to take a look at the cross-examination of Robert Durst in next week's episode. In the meantime, Ted Rollins, thank you so much. We will speak again, of course, and we'll see each other on the air. You can watch Ted every day, uh, every morning on Court TV, your front row seat to justice. When we come back, I am going to explain to you the historic nature of what we are watching right now inside that courtroom on Court TV. Don't go anywhere. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. So the trial of Robert Durst is historic on several different levels, and it's unusual on many more levels. But what's really historic about it is, is this is the second murder trial of Robert Durst that we're covering on Court TV. And as we've been talking about, he had one already. Back in 2003 in Galveston, Texas, the murder of Morris Black As Ted explained in detail, he admitted to the jury that he dismembered this man, yet he was found not guilty. He also took the witness stand in that case. That jury believed his story enough to raise a reasonable doubt. They found whatever he was telling them to be a reasonable explanation for what happened. Remember that there's there's a big difference here in what a defendant has to do versus the prosecution. The defendant, when they testify, they don't have to convince this jury beyond any and all reasonable doubt. This is exactly what happened. They just need to provide a viable, reasonable, alternative theory that uh, excludes the guilt of the defendant. So when he's testifying, okay, they don't have to say, wow, his story just blew me away and I believe him, you know, to the end of the earth. No, just that, well, that 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 could be what happened. That could be the truth. Now, the historic nature of this trial on on one level is you've got a criminal defendant testifying in his own defense, which is unusual, in a murder trial, but in a second murder trial. So two murder trials in a row, two completely different cases, right? One's in Texas, one's in California. They're connected but not related, at least according to this prosecutor in California, but at the at the end of the day, I, I've never covered the second murder trial of someone that wasn't a retrial of the first case. This is not a retrial. Of the first case. this is a completely different murder. So he's found not and, and the historic nature is he's found not guilty the first time. Who on earth is found not guilty of a murder and then is on trial for murder again? It's unbelievable. I keep saying that word during this podcast. That's the only way I can describe it. You got to watch it to to really. I guess, understand or check the show notes. We've got show notes, links to all this stuff. Now, the other thing that is historic is, you know, criminal defendants rarely win. If you watch Court TV, you know this. And, and 
Criminal defense attorneys will have one explanation. I have another. Uh, They rarely win because they're mostly guilty. I think it's super, extremely rare that innocent people, factually innocent people, are, are charged. And yes, it does happen. It has happened. But when you look at the number of cases versus the number of innocent people who are charged, it's just a fraction. So that's why they rarely win from my perspective. That's my analysis of all this. Um, Because it's not like the cards are stacked against them because it's the prosecution who has to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. They're the ones that have the burden of proof. So what you're watching now, could you imagine if this jury came back and said the same thing, not guilty? One defendant, two murders, two different jurisdictions, two different juries, decades apart, not guilty twice. Unbelievable. Now, uh, I think at this point, it's doubtful. I agree with Ted that this is an uphill battle because of, of what Ted said about this jury hearing about everything else hearing about all his entire life and, and going through it. And, you know, how many people have this type of luck or this type of black cloud hanging over their heads that your wife disappears, then your, your friend tries to kill you in Texas and you have to defend yourself and kill him. And, and, and then your best friend, you happen to walk in and find her dead on the floor. That, that it doesn't make common sense that that many circumstances would happen to the same innocent person, right? But that in and of itself is not guilt, but that's the filter through which this jury is hearing all the evidence. So that's why I think the defense had to have uh, Durst testify just because they heard all this stuff on, on in the prosecution's case. So they've got to come up with some level of explanation for it all from Durst's uh, perspective. So um, as many people that are, uh, taking pot shots at the defense for having Durst testify. There was no alternative. There was no alternative in this case. He has to. He has to provide those explanations. They can't come from a lawyer. They have to come from Durst's mouth himself. So uh, I think it's doubtful that he has the same result, but I- I'm not going all the way there. I- I'm not betting the house on it. This is a guy who admitted to dismembering a human being and told the jury exactly how he dismembered another human being and they found him not guilty of that murder. So that is Robert Durst. And that's it for this week. As I said, make sure you check the show notes. We have lots of links for you uh, to this story. Watch the trial on Court TV. Uh, it is a, it is available. Um, if you have an antenna, a digital antenna, just rescan it and you'll find Court TV and you'll see our gavel to gavel coverage of all the big moments of this case and the testimony of Robert Durst. I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we'll talk about cross-examination. Have a great week. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.